Psalm 99, verse 6. Moses and Aaron among his priests, and Samuel among them that call upon his name. They called upon the Lord, and he answered them. He spake unto them in the cloudy pillar. They kept his testimonies and the ordinance that he gave them. Thou answerest them, O Lord our God. Thou wast a God that forgivest them, though thou tookest vengeance of their inventions. Exalt the Lord our God, and worship at his holy hill. For the Lord our God is holy. Here in verse 6 we read of something wonderful. We read that God has human friends. And three are named. Moses, Aaron and Samuel. We thus learn then that God has the lowly in his fellowship. Whenever men get great and rich and become high and mighty, they often forget their lowly friends. Height brings higher friends, but not with God. He is high, but still condescends to have lowly friends. Here we have record of a humble people that call upon God's name. Verse 6. Now, of course, this calling upon God's name, that says something about them that do the calling. But it says something far more about God who allows himself to be called by men. He's pleased to hear them. He's pleased that men seek him and come before him, that call upon his name. God's name is who he is. And what is there about God's name that needs to be first and foremost in our mind? It is the thrice holiness of his name. This psalm is telling us that that name that we call upon is thrice holy. I remind you that it's divided into three stanzas. Verses 1 to 3, verses 4 to 5, and the last and longest stanza, verses 6 to 9. The stanzas are easily identified as separate because each ends on a similar climax. Each ends with a call to worship God for his holiness. Verse 3. Let them praise thy great and terrible name. For it is holy. Verse 5. Exalt ye the Lord our God. And worship at his footstool. For he is holy. And then at the end. Verse 9. Exalt the Lord our God. And worship at his holy hill. For the Lord our God is Holy. Isn't that then what the psalm really wants us to take on board? That this God that we approach and call upon, we can never think he's like ourselves. We have to remember he is different. He is wholly other. 
And we call that the holiness of God. He is holy. Even as we sung this morning, be stirred up his holy name to magnify and bless. So we must never forget this. We must always remember his awesomeness when we pray to him. The Bible says he is glorious in holiness. That is that holiness is his glory. It's his crown. This shows his infinite nobleness. His high dignity that he is so majestic to his creatures. So it's a glorious perfection that belongs to the very nature of God alone. You read often about God's name and in the descriptions of God's name the most often is that it's a holy name. I don't think we read that it's a merciful name or a gracious name though we read of those divine attributes but never attached with this word name. It's his name that is holy. A holy name. Didn't we read about Mary? She had experienced the power of God in the virgin conception in her womb. She felt something of the grace of God in that miracle and the wisdom of God and the faithfulness of God. So much about God she must have learned by that miraculous condescension and that virgin conception. But she says, He that hath done great things to me, she says, Holy is his name. She's taken up with his holiness, his altogether otherness. If God came to us and could only say one thing to us about himself, only one word that he could give us, only one word that we could receive, I believe it would be something like this. Be ye holy, for I, the Lord thy God, am holy. In fact, the first mention of the word holy in the Bible is very interesting. It was at the burning bush. And God appeared in the bush in his very presence. As Moses approached, he says, Moses, take off the shoes from your feet. The ground whereon you stand is holy ground. Because out of his presence is coming awesome holiness. It's God that is holy. God alone is holy. Whenever God rebukes our sin and shows us its greatest aggravation, it is always this, that not only is it against God's goodness, which sin is, not only is it against God's mercy and against his wisdom, which it is, but it is done before his holy name. You shall not profane his holy name. Whenever we sin, its greatest aggravation is this, that we sin against the Holy One of Israel. And so therefore it is something that is major. And I have been emphasizing it for several sermons. 
It's a fundamental about God. And yet, it is the very thing that the world doesn't want to know. And it is the very reason that the world does not seek God. For he is holy. He is too holy for the world. He is too holy for men. And they don't want to know about it. Nobody wants him. That is why God is called light in the Bible. Pure, unbounded, burning, shining light. Not just pure. Not just free from sin. But burning, shining light. Gloriously different from his creatures. If we are light, our light is a derived light, a reflected light, a light of life that we get from him alone. He is pure light. He is light in its fullness. He is the light that gives Life and light to all other beings. God dwelleth in light that cannot be approached unto. And that's another metaphor, another description of of his awesome holiness. This psalm then teaches us that God is thrice holy. And when we call upon his name, we're calling upon his thrice holy name. The three stanzas, verse 1, I remind you, he's holy in his sovereign majestic reign, the Lord reigneth. Verses 4 and 5, the second stanza, he is holy in his justice and righteousness, he loveth judgment, he establishes equity, he executes justice and righteousness, he's holy in his Righteousness. But then this last stanza, and this is the really amazing stanza, because in this one we see that he is holy in his relationships with men. Men are about him in verse 6, including Moses and Aaron and Samuel, this holy God, and men are about him. He who dwells between the cherubim and the seraphim, verse 1, also has about him men. Our iniquities are like the hairs on our head for number. The Bible says we drink iniquity like water. Yet he's found with men. And yet he's the Holy One. This is amazing. And this is why this last stanza really strikes us. The only three are named, they're not by themselves, because what does the text say? Moses and Aaron among his priests, and Samuel among them, that call upon his name. Samuel heads a great group. There's a vast multitude of prayers and worshippers of God and the seekers of the Lord among all of them. Around his throne, calling upon his name. So don't just think that there's only three people here. There are only three named, but they are representative of all the people of God. Representative of all the saints, among all them that call upon his name. In actual fact, if you're a Christian, you're here. You're in the text 
among them. You're here. The Holy Spirit sees you here in the verse. And I want you to know that if you're a believer and you come to God through Jesus Christ and you call upon the name of the true and living God, you are here in the verse among them. It's wonderful to know that, that we're among them. Moses and Aaron and Samuel are our brothers in Christ and we're part of the family and fold of God among them that have come to this heavenly Zion to worship this holy name, this thrice holy name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So you're in the text this morning. I am describing to you the reality of your existence as a Christian. You're among them. I call upon his name. And that's a great thing. That's a wonderful thing. And this number cannot be numbered. It's innumerable, the Bible tells us. It's all the redeemed, all the saved, all God's people. Though, as I say, only three are named as representatives of them. And the thing about all of these men as we go down through this stanza, the first thing is that these are men and women and young people that can come to God. You can't call unless you come. You can't worship Him unless you approach unto Him. You can't call upon Him and give Him your prayers unless you first Come to him, into his presence, into his courts. Uh, And that's the amazing thing. These are people that can come, that can approach to him who dwells between the cherubim. And we approach unto God. And, And that's why this is amazing. Because you see, we're sinners, we're unholy. And these three men are not here for their own holiness, I can tell you. The Bible tells us plenty about these three men, and we know that they are not sinless, and that they are not completely holy. We know that Moses was the man who broke the law of God in his anger. The very tablets that had been penned by the finger of God in his rage, he broke them. That's the man who's here. The lawbreaker. This is the man who who couldn't enter into the land of promise. He couldn't go in. And then Aaron. Well you know all about Aaron. He hasn't a lot in his life that we can talk about that's good and great. Aaron is the maker of golden gods. And the causer of the people to dance in their nakedness around them. Aaron is not without his faults. And Samuel, we've been looking at his life in the book of Samuel, and we see that he's not without his faults either. That there are times whenever he was unhappy with the ways of God, even angry and impatient with the divine path. And yet he's here as well. And their sinfulness is recognized in verse 8 because he says, 
Thou wast a God that forgivest them. So they're not perfect. They're not sinless. They're not anywhere near holy like the angels that never fell. And yet here they are. At his footstool approaching unto him to call upon his name. How can this be? How can God still be holy and have these relationships with men who are sinners? That's the question, isn't it? And the answer is, as we showed last Lord's Day evening, because of the covenant of grace, because God said, I'll make them my people and I'll forgive their sins and I'll put my law on their heart through my Christ. And it's all through Christ. And that's hinted at in verse 5 because we're told here about God's footstool that we come to. We just don't go directly, as it were, to the crown of God where the cherubim are up there directly, but we go to the footstool. And the footstool is the mercy seat. And the mercy seat has the blood upon it. And we go to God through Christ, crucified for who died for our sins. And we go to him at the throne of grace. Because in his death, he has reconciled us to God. So we go through the mediator, we go through the Christ of God, we go through the cross, we go through the blood of the Lamb. And we can come because of his grace. And yet all the while his holiness is maintained at the footstool, at the cross, in Christ. You see, God's salvation is a holy work. It's not a work that brushes sin under the carpet. And you can come anyway, no matter about the sins. And okay, well, you know, I'll just forgive them and I'll just brush it all away under the carpet. No, that's not how we approach God. It's the Holy Cross that we approach God by. It's the Holy, Holy Cross where Christ died. And in our restoration through grace there, we can join our brethren Moses and Aaron and Samuel and our iniquities are as great as theirs have been. And greater by far. But the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, washes us from all sin. And we can walk in the light and stand in the light and have this fellowship with him because of the blood that washes us. And so God saves us in a way of holiness. That's hinted at there in verse 8. He forgiveth them their sins Though took us vengeance of their inventions. So he forgives them, but there's still justice there too, and the justice is dealing with them, and at the cross, vengeance was taken upon our sins in Christ. And justice was satisfied, and the law of God was magnified and made honorable. In the blood of him who said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? For thou art holy. 
So these three men have peace with God because of the work of Jesus Christ. God's holiness and their peace kiss each other, as the Bible says. And that kissing takes place at the cross. Which is why our Saviour is so needful for us. And why we dare never go into the awesome presence and call upon the holy name except through our mediator Jesus Christ. So it's the cross that makes this possible. And as I said, these three men are representative sinners because they they picture us in so many ways But I'm not going to preach upon the three individuals. Suffice to say about their names, Moses means drawn out because he was drawn out of the water, out of the Nile, and we are able to come before God because he's drawn us out. He's drawn us out of the world. He's drawn us out of sin. He's raised us up into his presence and his grace. We're all Moses, having been drawn out. And then Aaron... The name that reminds us of light, the light bringer. And we are in God's presence because he's brought to us light. He brought to us the light of the gospel. He brought to us the illumination of grace that showed us the way to him through this holy footstool, Jesus Christ. And so we have been brought light. And we're all Aaron's. Now are ye light in the Lord. And then Samuel, who you know his name, he was asked of God, and there was a woman who made intercession for him, and he was interceded for and prayed for and prayed about, and he found life and came into the world on the grounds of intercession, asked of God. And we are Samuels, because there is one who ever liveth to make intercession for us, And on the grounds not only of his cross work, but on the grounds of his hearty desire before his father, we are brought in. Brought out and brought in. And the light comes to us because of the intercession of Jesus Christ. The holy heart of Jesus. We're saved by the holy cross of Jesus and by the holy heart of Jesus which desires our salvation. So these three men picture us, and we all have this same grace. We're able to come, because through him, Christ, we have access by one spirit unto the Father. And God is holy, and we can come. And God is holy, and we can call, because Having come, God wants us to call among them that call upon his name. Call upon me, he says. Seek ye my face. And of course that includes prayer, but takes in all of worship. I suppose prayer comes to the fore, but also praise. Praise his name, petition his name, whatever form it takes. It's all calling upon his name when we sing to him, when we petition him. It's all to him. It's communion with God. We're to come boldly onto the throne of grace 
that we may obtain mercy and grace and find the help. And it is by asking for these things that we get them. And so having boldness, brethren, let us come boldly onto the throne of grace by this new and living way, this mercy seat, this Christ crucified for us. God is holy. And yet, not only can we come, and not only do we call, but we are admitted as priests. It says here that Moses and Aaron among his priests, and Samuel, uh, as if to say he's a priest too, and he did wear an ephod, you remember in the studies, and he did the work of a priest. So there's the, the priesthood of these men that are identified, although Aaron only officially was in the priestly office. But they're all, in a sense, priests. Even as we are, he's made us priests to God, the Bible says. We're all about him as priests. Unto him who loved us, who bought us with his blood, and has made us princes and priests unto him. And so we have this privilege of being priests around God. That is, we have a white clothing, a white covering of the righteousness of Christ. We have the boldness and liberty to go in and out before him and to seek his face and to bring to him our needs and to tell him our desires and to tell him we love him and to tell him we need him to love us and to assure us and to give us the things that our poor needy souls need and as priests we can come in and do this we are a holy priesthood in grace although we never feel holy we never feel that we're like that. But that's how God views us in his son Jesus Christ. A holy priesthood. In the righteousness of Christ that covers us. And so we must never fear to come before him. It's the devil who says you can't come. You're just a poor sinner. You're not welcome. He's a liar. Never stay away from his presence. Even when you sin, repent. Repent and be cleansed and come in immediately and straight away without delay. You're a priest unto God. Calling is one thing, but will he answer us? Well, what does the text say? Among them that call upon his name, they called upon the Lord. Does it say full stop? No, it says, and he answered them. And it's repeated again in verse 8. Thou answerest them, O Lord our God. For he's holy, he's holy, and yet he answers his people. He answers their request. He's holy, he is utterly other, and yet he answers you to heal you. He condescends to bring you healing. He condescends to bring you the relief, the deliverance, or whatever it is you pray to him about. He is holy, and yet he answers us, worms, about his presence. What kind of holiness is this? That he answers the humble and lowly, who inhabits eternity and dwells between Jerubim, and yet he also inhabits us as well, the humble and lowly, to hear our prayers. And he is holy all the while. And so he gives us grace. But he doesn't only answer us. He does far more than that. Verse 7. He spake unto them. In the cloudy pillar. 
He not only hears and is dumb and silent, but merely listens and even answers. No, he is far greater than all of that. He speaks. He speaks his word to us. He ministers the word of God to us in the cloudy pillar. Now the cloudy pillar in the Old Testament was that sign of his glory that came down to earth and moved about the tent and led the people about. It was visible, it was manifested. They could see it and there was a voice coming out of it. And of course that cloudy pillar is Jesus Christ who was manifested among men who came and put his feet in this earth the footstool of God who walked about this planet and gave himself he not only gave himself he spake to us the word of God he declared to us the will of God he gives us his word he speaks to us it's in the scriptures through Christ he spake to us in his word through Christ he spoke to us in sundry times and in divers manners in time past but now in these last days has spoken to us through his son and it is the son of God who says father I've given to them all the words that you give me I've given them all the answers that they need to hear from thee he answered them and he spake unto them out of his Christ. And so we have the word of God. And we're so blessed. And week by week he, he ministers to us. And yet he's holy. And yet he ministers to us. And we feel him during the week. And we're such pure specimens of Christians during the week. And yet we come here on the Sabbath. And he speaks unto them. For he is holy. He does it in his holiness, you see. And what is more, it says there, they kept his testimonies and the ordinances that he gave them. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means that he gave them the grace to obey. And it means that their imperfect obedience, and it is an imperfect obedience because he doesn't say they kept it perfectly and they kept it completely. And as you know, the saints of God even whenever they have done all that they should do, they're still unprofitable servants and they still need cleansed and forgiven. So it's a very imperfect keeping of the ordinances and a very imperfect keeping of the testimonies of God. But nevertheless, he gives us grace, increasing grace to keep the testimonies and the ordinances. And we ought to do so, congregation. We ought to keep the word of God that we hear. We ought to keep the sacraments of the baptism and the Lord's table. We ought to keep these ordinances of God because he saved us to do this. And he accepts our sincere obedience. Even though it is very imperfect, he accepts our sincere obedience. And he's holy. And still accepts it. Because the sinfulness of their obedience is purified by the blood of Jesus Christ. And even our holy things that have stains are all washed by Christ's blood. And so he accepts their obedience and forgives the shortcomings. Verse 8, thou wast a God that forgivest them. But I want you to notice it is added 
though thou tookest vengeance of their inventions. You see, while the Lord forgives us our shortcomings and our sins, in his holiness he still chastens us betimes. He never sends us to hell. His people are redeemed by blood, but still his people must learn the holiness of God and the danger of sin and the evil of sin. And so while he forgives us, he must at times still punish us so that we learn his holiness. We're such wretched believers that we take for granted his grace and his forgiveness and sometimes we just don't learn the vileness of sin the way we ought and so he, he chastens us betimes. And we bear the marks of our sins and failures which never go away so that we are reminded it's all of grace and that he is holy and that though we are forgiven, it is not without cause. And so he still punishes our sins, though thankfully never eternally, because we must learn the consequences of sin. And bless his name, we do so without having to go to hell to learn it. And so many times we are humble, brethren and sisters, and severely chastened, and feel the grief of disobedience, and even bear its mark that never seems to go away. That's because he teaches us humility. So he's holy in all of this. And so do you see why this final call in verse 9 at the end of the stanza is so appropriate, so fitting. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy hill for the Lord our God is holy. Now having gone through stanza up the end, we may have expected exalt God for his grace, exalt God for such mercy. And indeed we do exalt God for those things. But God wants us to go beyond mercy and grace and to exalt him just for his holiness. Have we traveled that far in the Christian life? Are we still paddling around the benefits of the mercy and grace that we have received in our life and have not yet reached beyond to the awesomeness of his beautiful holiness that he has brought us in to see and enjoy? Through the waters of grace. And so this is a great psalm that teaches us that God is holy. Glorious in holiness. Let me put it this way in closing. Consider an early Christian martyr. Consider a saint who is being brought out to be crucified. Like Peter who was crucified upside down. Or like Paul who is brought out to be beheaded. Or the many multitudes of martyrs who were crucified or thrown to the lions. Or martyred in so many different ways. How would a a martyr be blessed by the psalm? And in three ways according to the three stanzas. They would know Christ as Lord. That the Lord reigneth in his holiness. And that would encourage them. Because Caesar... Caesar who has commanded them to deny Christ and to deny their Lord and who tells us he is Lord, he is Caesar 
and so they die because they will not deny their Lord, nor will they acknowledge the Lordship of Caesar above their own Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord reigns, and they gladly lay down their lives in the faith of that he is holy. It's the Holy One who reigns, and they despise Caesar, and they're not one bit concerned about his bloody ways. The Lord reigns. And then, uh, the injustice of it all. And it's a terrible injustice to be martyred. It's a terrible injustice to be crucified for righteousness' sake and to be thrown to the lions because you just love the Lord Jesus Christ. This seems like a great injustice, a great wickedness. But then you let yourself be thrown to the lions because you know He does righteously. The Lord who reigns does justice. And so you commit yourself to his justice and righteousness and his holiness. Because you know the Lord will rectify it all one day. And so martyrs who die are apt to cast themselves on the righteousness of God. The second stanza you see. For he is holy. And that's how they could die. Because the second stanza of the psalm upheld them. But then dying is a very solemn thing. And going into eternity is a fearfully awesome thing. And you particularly remember then. And if you don't remember, the devil is certainly around you and at hand to make you remember. You remember your sins then. You remember your unholiness then. You remember the life that was such a failure to God and such a poor flicker for the Lord. It all comes a great reality then at the end as you go into eternity, into the holy presence. And then you remember that these men are around him who were similarly failures. And yet they are around the holiness of God and are accepted He is holy and there they're found. And as you enter into the holy presence of God in and through death, you're reminded that in the holy cross and in the holy heart of your Redeemer, Jesus Christ, you have acceptance. And you can still say at the end as you go in there, He is holy. He is holy. His holy cross. Brings me into his holy presence. And you have peace. And the devil is flighted and driven away by the blood of the Lamb. And you have an abundant entrance into the glorious heavenly kingdom of holiness. Through your dear Lord. And so all these martyrs died happy and at peace exalting and worshipping and saying in their very last breath, He is holy. 